It's my uh, privilege to be joined by Professor Martin Bland um, from the University of York. And he's kindly agreed to talk to us about his statistical journey with his longtime collaborator and friend, Professor Doug Oldman, who sadly passed away last year. So uh, I suppose, uh, as is the best case with these things, is the best place to start is at the beginning, Martin. Yes. Okay, well, I... Uh... Uh, I first met Doug in 1972, September 1972, when I arrived at the Department of Clinical Epidemiology and Social Medicine at St. Thomas's Hospital Medical School in London. Uh, Doug had been in post for about two years. And uh, so as I came in through the door, there he was on the stairs, I remember. Uh, and. Uh, uh, I'd, uh, it was my second job. I spent my first three statistical years in agriculture after training at Imperial College, where I had the great privilege of being taught by Sir David Cox. Uh, and I did maths and then MSc in statistics. And I thought, right, that's enough now. It's time to get out into the real world. And I'd been learning all about the design of randomized blocks and Latin squares and so on. So I thought I'd go and see some. Uh, and I worked in agriculture for three years and then I, I fancied a change of scene and I got a job in medicine uh, and uh, before I applied for this job I had to look epidemiology up in the dictionary because it wasn't a word in common use at the time uh, but it sounded interesting uh, and worthwhile so I applied for and I got the job and uh, I arrived at St. Thomas's and uh, I met Doug and uh, we soon found that we had a lot in common in terms of things like our great admiration for the work of Bob Dylan and things like that uh, and uh, the work was very interesting it was uh, we were working on large epidemiological studies I was studying uh, working on two studies, each of thousands of school children about smoking and respiratory symptoms. And Doug was working on even more thousands of school children in the National Study of Health and Growth. And uh, I started to learn about medical research and the way it was done. And uh, a few years ago, I went back and reviewed The Lancet and the British Medical Journal for September 1972, the week I started in medical statistics, and uh, it was you know, it brought it all flooding back to me. Samples were very small. There were 61 research reports which used individual data, excluding case reports, animal studies, and so on. And the median sample size was 36. <laughs> so that is really small. And... Uh, in all 71 research reports, excluding case reports, uh, the methods of statistical inference, if there were any at all, uh, were significant tests. In the abstracts of 71 papers, nine mentioned p-values or significance, none mentioned confidence intervals. In the results section, 41 of 71 papers quoted the results of significance tests, either p-values, or test statistics, which are sometimes given, or I just said it was not significant, and uh, one gave confidence intervals in graphical form. So it was very different to what it is now, which I'll come on to later. 
And there was very little description of the statistical method. One of them, I remember, which amused me tremendously, noted that statistical analyses were performed using methods described by Snedeco 1956, which, of course, Snedeco is a standard statistical textbook and already superseded by the 1967 edition, which I had on my shelf and still do. Epidemiology was much more advanced than clinical research. As I said, our studies were large and I think quite well done. But change was on the way. And this is what affected both Doug and I. Evidence-based medicine was in the air. And there was very much a doctor-led movement to make people more aware that the treatments that they prescribe and the diagnosis they made should be based on objective scientific evidence. And the earliest reference I can find to this term was in a paper by Guyatt in 1992, but this was going around much earlier. And in the early 70s, David Sackett, who was uh, Gordon Guyatt's principal collaborator, visited our department at St. Thomas's for a sabbatical. And he was a big influence on both Doug and myself. We, we had many conversations with him. I think we both learned a lot from him. And, of course, all these ideas about basing things on evidence were something we were very enthusiastic about because we were professional evaluators and obtainers of evidence. And uh, there are all sorts of things that that led to. One of the things was that the promotion of systematic reviews of saying if we're going to look at evidence, we should look at all the evidence about something. And uh, Ian Chalmers, a friend of mine, both of Doug and myself, led a huge project to assemble all the trials ever done in obstetrics, which was a fantastic undertaking. And that led him to set up the Cochrane Collaboration, uh, which aims to do the same for all medicine. It's now just ongoing, updating its reviews, adding more evidence as it's collected. And again, statisticians were enthusiastic supporters, developing methods of data synthesis and so on. I was a bit sceptical at first because I thought, well, shouldn't we do the trials properly in the first place? And then you never need to do another one. Uh, But uh, it's a council of perfection and it's never going to happen. So uh, this this is the way we have to go. Um, But of course, there are other things going on as well. So that... Richard Peter led the call for large, simple trials. He thought, yes, we should have definitive trials. And he, the first large, simple trial that uh, uh, was done was ISIS-1, nothing to do with the Islamic State or anything. Uh, And uh, (laughs) the the paper was actually in the Lancet, was titled Randomized Trial of Intravenous Atenolol Among 16,027 Cases of Suspected Acute Myocardial Infarction. So it had the sample size of the title, which I thought was wonderful. Uh, but there are other thing, movements for the change, of course, as well. One very statistically led movement was to prevent, present information Sorry, I'll say that again. Uh, One very statistically led movement was to present inference uh, using confidence intervals rather than significance tests on the grounds that rather than just saying there's good evidence or not good evidence, you say, how big is the effect of this treatment and within what limits might it lie? And uh, a very, very important paper in this was by Martin Garper and Doug Altman in 1986. Uh, And that led to the British Medical Journal, including this in their instructions to authors and all the other major journals followed suit. 
So it changed the way we do things. Uh, another thing which Doug was very interested in was statistical reviews of journals because he uh, he uh, he wrote an important article uh, in 1981 calling for improvement in the way medical research is done. There's the scandal of poor medical research. Mm. And, uh, and he looked at a number of reviews which were done from the mid-60s onwards. And they were... Uh, yeah, they all said it's not very good, which is not surprising considering what I told you about the sort of things that appeared in the BMJ and the Lancet, which are the top top journals. Yes. Uh, and that led to people saying, let's have statistical refereeing. Now, I've not done much uh, statistical refereeing. I did something, you know, I worked. I did a couple of summer, summer relief jobs for The Lancet, uh, reviewing all the papers that came in. But Doug was with the BMJ, and he was very enthusiastic about this, and he led a group of statisticians at the BMJ who were reviewing papers. Uh, and uh, a lot of other journals then followed suit. Uh, and... Uh, the main difficulty is finding enough statisticians. There are more and more and more journals and there aren't enough medical statisticians to do it. Uh, now, anyone who's done a few systematic reviews will recognise that a big problem could be trying to work out exactly what researchers did when the precise re and what the precise results of a study are. And sometimes we might know how many participants were recruited, but we don't know how many were there at the end when they actually evaluate the results. Uh, and you, you, might, you might say, well, you know, the results of this paper are there, but they're in a graph. I have to get my ruler out and measure it. So, you know, any systematic reviewer will tell you all the terrible things they've had to do to try and get uh, information from papers. And this led to the development of something called a consort statement. Uh, the... Uh, consolidated Standards for Reporting Trials, first published in 1996. And this produced guidelines for reporting trials. And Doug was the referee for the first edition of the consult statement. He was a referee. And so they asked him to join in for the update. And he was, remained a part of that ever since, until he died. Uh, now, one of the things that uh, I think is an important influence on research quality was if you see something wrong, write a letter about it. Critical letters to journals. And Doug and I used to do quite a few of these. Our first attempt at a joint of publication was an unsuccessful letter to The Lancet, pointing out that a paper describing allocation as having been done more or less randomly was highly misleading. We said, allocation is either random or it is not. There is no intermediate state, nearly random, not random, not pompous at all. Uh, and the Lancet suggested we contact the authors, which is hardly the point. But a few years later, I saw a paper by Richard Peter that mentioned this unfortunate phrase, good for him. But our first actual publication doesn't appear on either of our official CVs, because it was a jokey letter to What's Brewing, the magazine, the campaign for real ale. And this responded to a report on the possible adverse effects of drinking keg beer. And so we wrote this, what we thought was a very witty lesson. It is hard to believe that the stuff can do the drinker any good, but to prove that it actually does him harm, 
Surveys and experiments must be designed most carefully to forestall the inevitable applications of bias. As statisticians working in medical research and good cameramen, we would be keen to help in assembling the data or designing and analyzing controlled experiments, provided enough volunteers can be found to swallow the suspect group. And we gave our address as London SE11. We didn't actually mention St. Thomas's in that. Uh, we uh, and so you know we, it was a very amusing and entertaining department to be in. We uh, we collaborated on another literary effort, uh, a allegedly humorous sheet distributed at the Christmas party in our offices, and uh, it was uh, it was in our offices from a place called Sancroft Street, and we called it the Sanitary Crofter, and uh, it was uh, written by the two of us and. Uh, Dr. Dr. Lacey, Dame Bueller Bewley and a couple of other people. Uh, but it wasn't until we both left St. Uh, Thomas's that we had our first joint academic publication, uh, the first of 100 plus. And this was a letter in the Lancet criticizing a study of enteric disease in San Francisco in 1977. And uh, Doug was at the MRC at Northwick Park in our group of statisticians. I was at St. George's Hospital Medical School. I was the only statistician there. I was there first. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and I, of course, I naturally wanted to be in touch with others in my field, and I spoke to Doug often because he was a great friend. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that was also how we discovered that we both come across the correlation and agreement problem. One of my co clinical colleagues, David Robson, cardiologist, came into my office one day, handed me a paper, saying that there was something wrong with it, but we didn't know what it was. I said, okay, leave it with me, I'll look at it. And we did a joint tutorial with a group of medical students. I'll tell you in the tutorial what I think. So what had happened was that these authors had been looking at the agreement between two methods of measuring cardiac stroke volume, how much blood the heart pumps out on one beat. And uh, they had pairs of measurements, uh, one was what the standard then, then standard method, which was uh, dye dilution. So you put some dye into the vein, it goes through the heart, comes out of the artery, and you measure how much dye there is in the blood coming out and calculate how much it's pumping through. Uh, and they were using an electronic method, uh, electrical impedance method. And these are not trivial measurements because people have to be in, under general anaesthetic to do them. So they're only done during surgery. And uh, so they got pairs of measurements, one by each method, and they plotted a scatter diagram, and they calculated a correlation coefficient and the p-value, and it was significant. But they also made a series of pairs of measurements on 20 individuals. So the 20 people, they made several pairs of measurements. And for each patient separately, they calculated a correlation coefficient, and they found that one of the 20 had a significant correlation. They concluded their methods did not agree. Now, of course, to a statistician, they do 20 and find one is significant. You say, yes, that's chance, isn't it? That's exactly that's what significant means. It would happen one in 20 times in the long run. Uh, and, uh, uh, and I thought, why is that? Well, what they're doing, 
strokes, unless the actual cardiac stroke volume changes over the short period of time that they're making these measurements, they're just correlating measurement error. So it's what you would expect. It doesn't tell you anything at all about the agreement. Uh, and uh, I mentioned this to Doug over the phone, and he said, you know, I've just come across the very same thing in looking at blood pressure, where they're looking at uh, systolic and diastolic blood pressure, that is the pressure when the heart pumps and when it contracts. And they, uh, and they found that if you measure blood pressure by two different methods, you've got a bigger correlation with systolic than with diastolic blood pressure, which is exactly what you would predict because the error of measurement in systolic and in diastolic is very similar, but because the variability of systolic blood pressure is much greater. So we thought, oh, that's, that's interesting, you know, so people are both, they're all doing this. Uh, and uh, you know, maybe there's something in this. So uh, we did what we thought we did best. So I wrote a rough draft at the start of the discussion of this issue. And, uh, and Doug searched for other examples and came up with two different misleading approaches. And uh, so we got three different misleading approaches, but nobody done anything that we thought was actually sensible. And, uh, and then we saw that the Institute of Statisticians, which no longer exists, has joined the RSS many years ago, announced a conference on health statistics and uh, I was certainly a fellow, I think Doug might probably was as well, uh, we put in our first statistical abstract, because we only ever spoke in a medical meeting before both of us, and we thought that standing up, saying everyone was doing it wrong, and sitting, in, sitting down again might fall a bit flat. So we said, what should we do? What would a statistician do? And it took us half an hour or so to come up with what we thought was a sensible method, the limits of what's now we call the limits of agreement method. So we submitted the abstract and we gave the talk in 1981 in Cambridge. And we thought that this method was so obvious, we didn't want to claim originality. I thought that somebody was going to stand up and say, well, Fisher did this in 1937, you know, there's nothing original. I thought, why should there be? It's obvious. Uh, so, but nobody did and nobody ever has. So we drafted a paper for publication, and we were really anxious about this because you know, we, we were used to writing for medical journals, but for a statistical journal, it was another matter altogether. So uh, Doug sent the draft to uh, Michael Healy, who was his boss at, uh, had been his boss at, uh, at the MRC and was professor of medical statistics at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and I sent it to Sir David Cox. So uh, they were both very generous, and eventually we submitted it to the statistician, which no longer exists, uh, and it was published in 1983. Uh, it was Altman and Bland, our names were in alphabetical order, and I'm afraid David Robson, who first brought the problem to my attention, uh, received only an acknowledgement. Uh, but our friends liked the paper, but everywhere else, people just carried on correlating. And we thought, it's a thing, you know, there's, there's a movie in that, carry on correlating. <laughs> but, uh, so several people suggested to us that we should write a version for a clinical readership with a worked example. So, okay, well, for that, I need some data. So I collected my own comparing a right mini flow meter with a standard meter and I uh, 
I collected two measurements of peak flow by each in random order from anybody I could get ourselves, colleagues around the office, my family. So it's one of the few published data sets that includes the author's parents and parents in law. Uh, and then we wrote the paper. Where are we going to send it? We said, why not send it to the Lancet? They'll turn it down, but we might get some useful comments. And they always give you a quick reply. So we sent it to the Lancet. Uh, and we decided we just reversed the name order, so this one was Bland and Altman. Uh, and uh, the week before Christmas 1985, I got a phone call from David Sharp, the deputy editor of The Lancet, and he said they'd like to publish it, which is a lovely Christmas present. And, uh, but he said, but it's too long, and he could hear me go, down the phone. <laughs> so he said, but it's all right. He said, we'll be the editor of The Lancet. I've never heard of this before, I'll say. So after Christmas, it came back, and I thought, yeah, better than what I thought we wrote. <laughs> but something vital was missing. So I said to David Sharp, if we could have one paragraph back, the confidence interval for the limits, you know, that we, it would be great. Is that really important, he said? And I said, yes, I really think it is. So he said, all right, then. So it went back in, and the paper was published as in nine, the beginning of 1986. And to our complete amazement, it was a staggering success. It led to the statistician paper being cited too. So in 1992, the Institute for Scientific Information asked us for a commentary on the two papers together as a citation classic for current content. Uh, and that's only six years after the Lancet paper was published. So it's very quick. And it became the most highly cited paper in the Lancet. I, I learned that from uh, uh, reading an article by David Sharp about working with the Lancet. And he said, yeah, the most highly cited paper written by two statisticians. <laughs> and by, by telling you this, I'm giving them another one. <laughs> I thought, well, you know, it was you who invited this, David. And, uh, um, it, uh, and in, at the end of 2014, uh, to celebrate 100, uh, sorry, 50 years of the Institute for Scientific Information, uh, Nature published a paper about the most highly cited statistical papers. Sorry, say that again. Nature published a paper about the most highly cited papers ever, and ours was at number 29. So that was staggering. I don't mean we're not scientists, you know, Einstein isn't on this list, or Watson and Crick, or R.A. Fisher come to that. But, you know, it's all about methods, particularly the highest ones of biochemical laboratory methods. But, you know, it still is very nice. We were asked many questions about how to calculate limits of agreement uh, in more complex situations, which we tried to answer. And we published more papers on this topic, saying, so, you know, what do you do when you've got multiple observations on the same person? You know, what do you do uh, if things don't follow nice normal distributions? What do you do if there's a relationship between the error and the size of the measurement? And, uh, and so we ended up with uh, four publications on agreement with more than a thousand citations and five, which are the most highly cited in their journals, which is quite amazing. And Doug moved to, uh, from uh, the MRC to the Imperial Cancer Research Funds, it um, was called Cancer UK now, uh, Lincoln's in Fields, and I was due a sabbatical. I got two small children, so I didn't want to travel. So I went and spent it with Doug. Uh, 
and we wrote and submitted an RSS ordinary meeting paper published in uh, 1991, and uh, that was uh, published in the RSS. Uh, I'll just find the title. In. Uh, it was called, called Improving Doctors Understand Legal Statistics. Not one of our greatest hits, but it was a great experience to prevent, present that before the Royal Statistical Society. And then in 1994, Doug was invited by BMJ to contribute a series of fillers to be called statistics notes. Uh, and they, they wanted these fillers. They used these fillers to, for the paper BMJ to avoid gaps on the page. And uh, he very sensibly, I thought, said that to keep him from error, he'd need a co-author. And he suggested Martin Bland. And they said, oh, that's a good idea, yes. So uh, we agreed that we would do this. And the first one was published in 1994. And um, uh, now 65, I think, with eight co-authors, but always one of us as an author. Several other people have joined us. Uh, and at first, we, we didn't think anything would happen. We thought they'd lengthen our CVs, but no more. And then people began to cite them. And one of them on the Bonferroni correction passed a thousand citations. Now to be joined by a couple more, so it's quite remarkable. And uh, Doug. Left, Ox left London for Oxford, but still with ICRF uh, and the formation of the statistics unit in Oxford, the, uh, uh, the Centre for Medical Statistics. And uh, we continue to work closely. And of course, the technical revolution uh, brought email. So it was very easy for us to do it then. We no longer had to be face to face all the time. And we were in frequent contract contact, exchanging drafts, and we met often in London at RSS meetings, particularly medical section meetings, uh, and the rail link between London and Oxford was very good, so it was easy for me to travel out there uh, to meet. But then in 2003, I left the big city for York, and we continued to write together, but less frequently as time, you know, we have many more things to do, and there's, there's a slow rail link between York and Oxford, main meeting in frequent. takes three and a half hours each way. So, but we go on, you know, we went on and we had uh, uh, publications accepted uh, up to uh, 2017, the year Doug died. And then last year we had, uh, sorry, 27, the year before Doug died, and then in 2018, we had several others which were with a large group of people. Uh, in Oxford, Doug's career moved in new directions. First, he was leading the unit, uh, and uh, something I've always avoided. When I went to York, I said, it's on condition I don't have to be head or chairman of anything. So all I've ever been chairman of is the medical section of the RSS, which was pretty easy. Uh, and uh, he works a lot with the consort group. He joined other groups, uh, the Equator Network, which he now leads, spreading the word about improving the quality of medical research. And this was always his primary focus, was improving the quality of medical research, whereas I was working on particular clinical studies, and that was my main uh, concern. So, you know, I, I, I asked several times, did it all work? Is medical research of higher quality now? So I repeated my review of The Lancet and the BMJ in February 2017, and the sample size uh, was much fewer 
it was went from 61 papers down to 25 papers. The median was 36 in 72, the median number of people in the study. And in 17, it was 4,383. So, yeah, that's a more than a 100-fold increase, which is pretty large. Uh, P-value or significance in the abstract from, went from 9 out of 71 to 18 out of 30. And in the paper from 41 out of 71 to 24 out of 30. But confidence intervals in the abstract went from none out of 71 to 27 out of 30. And uh, so there was this huge change in statistical inference. And uh, no statistical inference at all was 30 out of 71 papers in uh, 1972. And it was 3 out of 30 in 2017. And I noticed that uh, 28 of the 30 papers had a methods subsection and the other two had a methods paragraph, whereas in 1972, there's three out of 71 had anything in the methods at all about what statistical methods were. So the quality of research has improved. And I thought, you know, have we actually got any better as a result of this? And so I, I thought, what will be a good index? And I thought, yeah, I know life expectancy at 65, because that's when you're really dependent on medical uh, interventions. You know, I, mean, I, I I take seven drugs every day because I'm 71 years old and, uh, uh, and they keep me very active. Uh, and I looked at and I thought, and I knew that when I started in this business in the 1970s, life expectancy at age 65 for men had hardly changed at all since it was first measured in the 1840s. So I got these data out and was fascinated to see, yes, it did improve for women from 1901 going, it started to go up life expectancy at 65 and continues to go up now. Uh, but uh, it's almost doubled uh, since the baseline of the uh, uh, 12 years in 1841. But, uh, you know, the one possible explanation for that is that women stopped having so many pregnancies because the babies stopped dying. That was the first, that's the great driver, the babies stopped dying. So people stopped having so many pregnancies and uh, they uh, arrived at 65 fitter and healthier. But it didn't, because this didn't do much for men, and they continued flat until... Uh, the 1971 census, and after that, the 1981 census, the first one where there's an appreciable rise in life expectancy at 65 for men. And then it shot up, and it's almost reached that for women now. So women living longer than men seems to be a strictly 20th century phenomenon. It's disappearing. So it does appear that uh, things have changed, that men, health has got better, and I think that that's because medicine has got better, but I can't prove it. And I think that medical research uh, is the main influence on that, but I can't prove it. But, you know, I think one of the people who did most to bring about this improvement was Doug Altman. I think that he was a great man. He was a statistical hero. And he was, you know, a great friend. And uh, I'll tell you, you know, we, we, we wonder sometimes why did we, managed to write so much together and we said it's because we made one another laugh and you know Doug was 
very great in life because he made people laugh. Uh, he was a he had a very dry sense of humour, and uh, he was a wonderful person to work with. And I'm afraid I still miss him every day. So there you are. So that's my friend, Robin. <laughs>